to Down Camp Road. We'll share a piece of scripture with a reflection and prayer along with a story about the camp experience. Here's our camp community in audio. Ben, growing up with a family of five siblings, was there ever conflict in your house? Yeah. Yeah, there was conflict. Sometimes (laughs) there's still conflict. (laughs) Would you say that the conflict was evenly distributed or was a certain sibling often singled out? It was not very evenly distributed. It was not a democratic process. Um, Often younger siblings were singled out, specifically in the means of uh, being fooled and other sorts of conspiracies. Fooled by their older siblings? Fooled by their older siblings. I can think of one instance uh, where a younger sibling was told for probably several years um, that a room existed in the house that everyone could access except them. Oh no, an imaginary room that didn't exist? (laughs) Yeah, the secret room is what we called it. The secret room had all kinds of things. It had like pool pool tables, recreation equipment. <laughs> it had anything, lots of things that um, a kid would want to access, but, uh, you know, like adults, adults probably wouldn't want you to. So were you really mad at your siblings when you found out that this didn't exist? Well, actually, um, I was the one trying to convince the sibling. Ben! <laughs> Oh, no. (laughs) How's your relationship with that sibling these days? Uh, It's pretty good. So, yeah, somebody who was singled out um, and, and now has a relationship of grace. Where has your family experienced conflict? Have you experienced forgiveness? I'm Bronwyn from Verona, and this is Genesis chapter 45, verses 1 through 15, and chapter 50, verses 19 and 20. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants, and he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And then he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there has been famine in the land, and for the next five years there will be no plowing and no reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me a father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, don't delay. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me. You, your children, and your grandchildren, your flocks and your herds, and all you have. I will provide for you there, because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise, you and your household, and all who belong to you, will become destitute. You can see for yourselves 
and so can my brother Benjamin, that it is really I who am speaking to you. Tell my father about all the honor accorded to me in Egypt and about everything you have seen, and bring my father down here quickly. Then he threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept, and Benjamin embraced him, weeping. And he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. Afterward, his brothers talked with him. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. When we look back at the story of Joseph, where do we think that Joseph felt God's presence the most? Now, for many of us, we might be drawn to answer that question by looking at the end of the story. Joseph has triumphed. He's achieved status. He's gained the trust and the admiration of Pharaoh. He's even reconciled with his family, long estranged from him, a family that did some pretty terrible things. Yet I like to think that Joseph probably felt God's presence the most, not at the end of the story, but in the middle, when he was in a well, by himself, beaten and left for dead. Because we worship the crucified God. We don't worship the God that sits on the throne in triumphal self-congratulation. We worship the God that comes down into the well with us that dwells with us, that makes God's presence known, not just in our times of happiness, but in the times when things are pretty tough. I like to imagine that Joseph was keenly aware that God was with him in those moments, when it was hot in the sun and cold by night, when he thought very well, I could die down in this well. Because that's what the cross is all about. God reaching into our world, God finding us at the bottom of our wells, and making God's presence known. Today we don't have a lot of wells that are visible in our culture. Certainly they're not large enough to throw anybody into. But we certainly have a lot of families that are experiencing conflict. There are certainly many ways where we can feel isolated, cut off, down at the bottom of a pit. And if the Christian story means anything to us, it's that God works for good in those moments. That God's presence is in some way redeeming. That God's presence is in some way moving us forward. And that's why I'm so drawn to this story. Because it tells us that whether we're living in a well caused by pandemic or caused by systemic racism, or canceled by foiled plans or foiled conflicts, or, fa- or, or, or strife within our family groups. God works for good. And maybe that's something that we can practice. That we can come back to this example of Joseph and remind ourselves that the blessed are not those who sit on the throne, but the blessed are those who sit at the bottom of the well. And maybe that's a practice we can get into by trying to understand what are the wells in our life where we feel alone, where we feel isolated. And if we notice ourselves there, can we notice that God is there with us? And if we can notice that God is there with us, can we not also imagine 
that God is in some way working for good. Finally, let's remember that even when we recognize the depth of the well where we find ourselves, that it was not God who cast us down into that well in the first place. God doesn't cause that. God doesn't cause that isolation, that suffering. Nevertheless, God is present. God is good. And God is always redeeming. Ryan, you talk about a crucified God in your reflection. And I want to know, uh, why, why is that important for us to understand God and to see God and to know God as a crucified God? Sure, yeah. Well, the, the term crucified God is not a term I invented. It, it comes from a famous theologian that I, that I read some of in Luther Seminary named Jürgen Moltmann. And uh, what, what Jürgen Moltmann suggested is that to know God and to understand God, you have to look up at Christ on the cross. There's no other moment in all of the scriptures that reveals more about who God is for us than, than the cross. And what we see when we look to the cross is a God who is alone, um, who's suffering, who feels abandoned and isolated, and who, who feels the pain of the world. And what that does for us is it shows that, that God is not with us in our moments. Well, God is with us in our moments of triumph and, and joy, of course, but where we really understand God is our moments of isolation, our moments of loneliness. Um, that's where God is with us in, in most solidarity. So to that, that, that's a message of hope, I think, during these times of isolation and sickness, uh, to really remember to look to the cross, uh, because that's where, that's where God is found. And as we live through this global moment of isolation, uh, God is very much with the world in a way that uh, we may never have seen before. You mentioned that maybe it's something that we can practice trying to understand the wells in our life. Uh, where do you think we should start with practicing finding the wells? So it's a, it can be helpful just to take an inventory of how you feel about certain things on a, on a day-to-day -day basis. I think the practice of mindfulness of just noting how you feel as you go through your day can be helpful to identify the high points and low points in the, in the cadence of your life. Um, like for me, I'm working from home, from home right now. I've got my computer set up in my basement. Uh, it feels kind of alone. And at that first moment of the day, when I log on to my computer and I'm barraged with email notifications and things on my to-do list, and yet I'm sitting here just by myself, it really feels, um, alone. And I have trained myself to, be able to observe that feeling of, of, of loneliness to take note of it. Um, so it, it's, it's a practice of noting, of recognizing when there is loneliness, when there is a sense of isolation. Um, and, and that takes a little bit of, of practice and, and focus to be able to do. One thing that's also been helpful with regard to that has been trying to disconnect from some of the technology in my life. Now I'm obviously really big into technology. I work on a computer. I write about the church and technology. Uh, but to understand where those moments of loneliness are, 
you can't be scrolling through a social media feed. Um, you can't be absorbed in the latest trendy app you have on your smartphone um, because those tend to distract us and um, inhibit us from seeing when those well moments exist. So those are the two things that I would recommend as part of that practice. First, noting when you feel like that, being, a, being an observer and also unplugging, disconnecting, giving yourself permission to feel lonely because that's where you're going to notice God the most. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Ryan, I, that's so interesting because, um, uh, you know, we, we're just coincidentally, uh, both of our, our families are in stages where we have uh, very small children. And, um, you know, as you said about that, that sort of isolating experience and, and you know, there's this adage, it takes a, a village to raise a child. Um, but almost, almost part of pandemic experience is re- realizing that it takes a village to live a life. It takes a village to support an adult too. Yeah. Yeah, it really does. And, and, and none of us have experienced something like this before where we've lived in prolonged isolation for five to six to seven months. Uh, this, this is a completely new experience for anybody who's living today, unless by you know, some miracle they happen to be alive and happen to remember the 1919 Spanish flu pandemic. Mm-hmm. But uh, to, you know, to kind of paraphrase an article I read this week, um, it, it talked about how we're all running um, low on energy right now. A lot of us are running low on morale and motivation. And the reason for that is all these like social structures that have supported us and motivated us and, and reinforced um, living the good life in, in the past now seem so distant. And, and, that's, and that's really hard. Um, church is one of those systems that has been pulled away from many people. Even though we can watch church on YouTube, uh, some are struggling to connect to their church communities at this time. That's been, that's been a difficult spiritual crisis for, for many. Yeah, <laughs> the, um, the note about none of us have ever lived through this is something that really carried me through the first um, few weeks and months of the pandemic was just recognizing that all these people who are doing their best to lead have never led through a pandemic before. And um, when they make decisions that we think are imperfect <laughs> to remind ourselves that they have never done this before. They were. They have never been trained. There are no books to read about how to lead through a global pandemic, um, and just really remembering that um, it's a new experience for all of us that we're we're going through. Yeah, and that's a, a way. Uh, that's an expression of grace to remember to remember that and to extend some patience and to extend some kindness. And, and grace is something that in the world is running short of. Was running short of well before the pandemic hit, uh, you know, I, I work in uh, a tech company and I, I kind of observe sometimes what's happening with our tech company's customer support uh, operation. And, and we, we continue to be kind of barraged with customers that are, that are mad, that are, that are furious because it's taking a little bit more time to get back to them. Uh, our offices are closed. Everybody's working from home. Things are just not running as efficiently as they always have. And, and so many people are angry that, that the efficiency isn't there, that the normal experience has changed. 
So part of being a person of faith during these times is to remember what you just said, Robin, that, you know, be patient. (laughs) Being patient is a spiritual practice. Give people some grace, give yourself some grace. None of us have ever been through this and hopefully none of us will ever have to go through this again. Right. No. You you wonder too if the efficiency and the need for productivity is a coping strategy that they're using to navigate their situation and um, it kind of helps to to think about that and and remember that to be able to extend them that grace too. Yeah, you know I saw that at the grocery store a lot in April. Yes. I, I when I would go to the grocery store, the line would be twenty people deep and spread six feet apart. They'd be sanitizing the conveyor belt between people. It took a long time to get through the grocery store order line. And, and thankfully it's soon, it's since improved. But when a lot of people got up to the front of the line, they kind of lost it on these poor checkout clerks, you know, these 16 year old kids making eight twenty five an hour. And I just felt like, you know, uh, this is so hard for, for everybody. Um, and especially hard for that checkout clerk. And we all need to learn with, uh, we all need to, to learn to, to treat them and to treat these situations with, with, with the kindness that, you know, we're called to embody as, as, as followers of Christ. How can we share the message that, that God works for good to people who need to hear that so desperately? Well, the first thing that I would recommend is to not rush to that message that God works for good. Um, start with the message that God is with you in those moments when you're down in the well. Because what I think we try to do too often as, as Christians or too often in the church is to rush ahead to those, you know, to those Easter Sunday moments where everything is, just, everything is made all better. Um, we try to hit a fast forward button through these really hard moments like the pandemic and the isolation that it's caused. So that would be the first thing that I would encourage people to do is to, to not rush anybody um, to the conclusion that God makes things better. The, the second thing that, that I would, um, that I would encourage any follower of Christ to think about is the idea that God makes things better. Um, but God makes things better in a way that is often incomprehensible um, to, to us or, or kind of beyond the scope of our imagination. Uh, I, I used to have these theological conversations with my grandfather when he was still around and he would, he would, repeatedly go back to his insistence that God answers all prayers, um, but seldom in the way we understand or, or sometimes in ways that defy our own observation. And, and to remember that the way God is making things better is on a scope that is sometimes imperceptible to the human eye. And then the third thing uh, I would recommend is to, to make moments for stillness, meditation, and prayer. Because to, to perceive how God is making things better, we're not going to get a push notification on our phone that says, hey, God did this for you. We're not going to see a Facebook post from God that says, hey, 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 buddy, did this thing for you. Enjoy. We're going to have to notice it through the stillness and the silence. And if we don't cultivate the stillness and silence in our life, we might miss how, how God is, in fact, saving and redeeming the world. I'm Madeline from the forest. Dear God, 
Please help us hear your voice when we're stuck or feel left out, when we don't know how to help, when our path feels long. Walk with us, just like Joseph, when our brothers or sisters are in need. Help us give generously. When we are most separated, help us turn to you. In your Son's name, amen. I'm Emily from Cedarburg. A few summers ago, the Tuesday Night Campfire Group performed a skit called Light of Mine. Tuesday nights were always spent in the back 40 where the sun would almost be completely down and the lightning bugs came out. Every week, the skit was empowering as the staff members sang this little light of mine while holding out their pointer fingers, symbolizing candles, and not letting their candles be blown out by negative comments. They continued to let their lights shine and stay confident as others were judging them and saying mean remarks. One week, at the end of the skit, the group sporadically decided to pass the light to campers and other staff members by touching fingers. Eventually, everyone was holding up their finger, symbolizing a candle, and singing along. Suddenly, everyone went silent, like they knew this was the last time we were repeating the chorus. Hearing the crickets and wind blow through the trees, while seeing the lightning bugs and content smiles on everyone's faces gave me the chills. God's light shines in all of us and continues to burn despite others putting us down. This moment was a great reminder to everyone of that fact. Go out and let your little light shine. Thank you to all the voices we heard today. Bronwyn from Madison, hippest camper, lover of the lake life, and camp ambassador. Ryan from Madison, author, father, and one of the original creators of UWB. Madeline from DeForest, dream camper with a giant heart of kindness. Emily from Grafton, artist and healer at camp and in the world. 